Welcome, everyone, to Episode 10 of Earth Intelligence. Today and in the next episode, we're going to be focused on the subject of the rights of nature. You see, it's our belief that in order to turn back climate change, we can't simply accept the science. We can't just focus on rising sea levels and powerful hurricanes, wildfires, extreme flooding events, and droughts. All of those are, of course, important to focus on. But we rather hope that we can get to the why, the the understanding of the systems and the coming alterations to those systems. We hope that will provide you with a stronger understanding of climate change. I'm joined by Myra Jackson, visiting professor and fellow at Colorado College and one of the principals in the UN's adoption of the 17 SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals. She's a diplomat of the biosphere and a UN representative and focal point on climate change. And today we are going to rely on her vast knowledge of the rights of nature and earth law. Joe Robertson is the founder of Geoversive, a member of the Food System Economics Commission, lead strategist for Resilience Intel Climate Smart Finance Initiative, and I'm Don Shelby, a career journalist and investigative reporter welcoming all of you as we begin this uh, investigation, inquiry into the rights of nature. Now, to many, the idea of rights of nature may seem strange to you. It may be something you've not heard of, but it is a vast movement going on globally. And in fact, it started in a small town in Pennsylvania and then spread throughout the world. And so, Myra, give us a brief background on the development of the idea of rights of nature. Don, thank you for the for the, the wonderful opening. Truly, I uh, love starting with the genesis, and and if we were to track it, we would track it back 135, almost 40 years ago, 140 years ago, with the colonizing of New Zealand, and that was when really the first petition involving rights of nature came into consideration, and it took until 2017 for the Maori people of New Zealand to realize that effort to see it come into law. Most recently, the movement really took off in the United States. And you mentioned the small town in Pennsylvania. There was a whole series of towns in Pennsylvania that went forward with these laws. And from there, we have seen an incredible resurgence since Ecuador included rights of nature in their constitution. This particular law had a strong ripple effect in the United Nations because, you know, shortly after that, Bolivia also enshrined rights of nature into law and brought forward a resolution at the United Nations to recognize the rights of Mother Nature. From that, a whole program at the United Nations that carries and takes care of that particular resolution, bringing it forward year after year since 2009, called the Harmony with Nature program. And so this is the body that is tracking this movement, a very rich and vibrant movement that really is I would say, at the heartbeat of the movement, 
a consideration and respect for Indigenous peoples and their worldview. We're going to be getting deep into the idea of the of Indigenous people and their rights, which have been abridged historically by uh, colonizing uh, factions all over the globe. And we want to talk about that. But the first thing I want to do is for you to describe for our audience, what is a right of nature? Are we supposed to be giving nature personhood, in a sense, uh, the way that the Supreme Court in Citizens United gave businesses a form of personhood? Can nature be represented, for instance, in a court of law if nature were the victim of some act of humankind? Well, Don, you've raised you know, a question that is really still in debate. As with human rights, nature's rights are inherent. You know, when the United States drafted the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, the drafting committee really observed then that the supreme value of the human person, of course, did not originate in the decision of worldly power. It's not in that domain that that is determined but rather in the, that fact of, of existing itself. So existence itself is the basis that underlies human rights. Now, when you mention the whole idea of Citizens United in the United States, many have argued on top of that intrinsic premise of the right to exist, this idea of personhood that's gone to corporations. And it has been a part of the debate, but this is not the root. It's not the root of rights of nature. It actually kind of goes far afield from what we feel is intrinsic. And so while much is being argued in courts, depending on jurisdiction in the United States, this idea of personhood has come into the debate. Now, New Zealand did assign personhood to the Wanganui River. This is true. How this gets carried out, though, when trouble arises, is still the challenge. And in those situations, like in New Zealand and other places where personhood has been established, the guardians become the voice of nature in the court, just like young children who are you have guardianship over would have adults to speak for them in court. Joe, does this suggest what you sometimes refer to in these podcasts as, uh, as Jefferson wrote, uh, oddly, unalienable rights, rights that are not outlined in the Constitution don't necessarily mean you don't have those rights. Is this an unalienable, or as we say now, as the lexicon has changed, inalienable, an unalienable right as Jefferson would perceive it? Yes, I think that's, I mean, that's how I understand the, the meaning of intrinsic rights or inherent rights or rights that exist because you exist. Another way to look at that question is that there really are no other kind of rights. So for instance, corporate personhood is an artificial legal construct that provides a certain number of tools and a kind of leverage to be able to treat artificial entities as if they were people, but those are not rights in the strictest sense. Human rights, the rights of nature, these are things that exist because we exist. The easiest way to think about what that 
idea of unalienable means is that you cannot reject the existence of that right simply because it has not been written down. You cannot reject the existence of that right because something was written down that appears to say it shouldn't exist. You cannot, under any circumstances, distance that right from those who have it. The complication there, I think, for a lot of people is people like to think about rights as something that belongs to them. They don't always think about everyone else having that same right. And when we see societies break down into factions, us versus them, my interest versus your interest, people think about rights as having something to do with those competing interests. But in reality, if someone who benefits from a system of uh, exploitation or oppression thinks that their interest is served by infringing on the rights of the vulnerable, they are wrong. Those rights are mutual to both of those people. The person who attempts to benefit from some sort of exploitative behavior, their rights are the same as the rights of the vulnerable. And when the rights of the vulnerable are infringed, their own vulnerability, however much power they may have, their own vulnerability is also expanded. And so just a final point, the rights of nature are a way of saying Because sometimes there's a public interest in using natural resources, we need to find a way to make sure that our shared interest in protecting nature is also safeguarded. Myra, now is a good time to probably get into the indigenous rights of those individuals who have relied on nature and those people who consider nature a part of being a human being and could not exist without nature, we should probably talk about the history that led to that oppression of those groups. Now, we have been talking and will be talking more about the Maoruri people, that we are uh, talking about people who for 140 years, as they traveled across Polynesia and settled in New Zealand, were hunted down. All that they knew and loved and all that they respected in earth was cast aside in a colonial government. But New Zealand rose to the challenge and said, we've been wrong. And the recognition of the rights of nature came with an apology to those people who were not only oppressed, but often enslaved. This is also a movement. The heart of the movement really is the recognition that all living beings possess certain fundamental rights. Getting back again, really important to emphasize the heart of the movement and what drives this movement is the intrinsic nature. And we're fortunate to have Indigenous people still with us to help us restore those connections to the earth. And when those connections are restored, you see where we've gone off course very easily. And and the Indigenous people help us with that. What I love about the New Zealand example, Don, is that it is showing us that when we return to this restored relationship with nature, that it makes other things possible uh, that we're seeing in New Zealand. And I really do equate that to the fact that when we are in relationship with nature, we're having to use our sentient intelligence not just our mental processing mind, and our empathic response. 
And when we do that, we're dealing with a meta mind, if you will, that allows us to embrace complexity, a kind of complexity that most people miss when they are viewing Indigenous peoples from a modern point of view. Today in New Zealand, the country is leading the way, I think, in, in toward a future that is more whole. And this is what we need. We need new futures to rise whole, where these very intrinsic rights that we speak of are for all. And so the indivisible nature is very clear to New Zealanders, and they do see it very much as a process of decolonization. Joe, is it possible that this can become a global movement? Because already the United States, Ecuador, Bolivia, Mexico, Brazil, India, Colombia, Ethiopia, Costa Rica, of course, New Zealand, uh, have already established in some way, shape, or form and when I say the U.S., I don't mean the U.S. as a federal government, but in, in locations around the United States, cities have already taken these steps. Can this become a global movement where we recognize nature? And if we do so, can that help in any way stem the threat of climate change? Yes. Uh, to both of those questions, it can become a global movement. And yes, it can help to stem the threat of climate change. One very simple example would be if nature has rights and watersheds and the ecosystems that reside across those watersheds have rights, then one of the things that must be protected for all of that to exist is the cryosphere. And so if we want to avoid severe global heating and extreme climate destabilization, we need to protect the glaciers that feed the watersheds. So there's a clear example of how protecting nature can help to mitigate climate change. The question, of course, is how do we protect the cryosphere? Of course, we have to decarbonize. That becomes part of that process. In terms of becoming a global movement, it's important, I think, to recognize, as we have often talked about, the fact that we have a climate emergency, the fact that a natural system that essentially makes the biosphere habitable for human beings as we live now. The fact that we have that emergency means that the geophysics of the planet are now an ethical fabric in a way that was not true before. And so it may not be that the United States establishes rights of nature as a constitutional amendment. That may never happen. But it could happen in so many places across the United States that the judicial system recognizes that this is a fundamental piece of the overall puzzle of rule of law and civil rights. And as that kind of thing happens and spreads at different levels of authority around the world, as people realize this is a way we can protect ourselves and also protect our children, our grandchildren, and maybe seven generations into the future, if we can act with such wisdom, if we can build a sustainable world in that way, and this is one of the tools, it is a natural consequence, I think, of that recognition that this will spread and become a global movement. And a final point there, it isn't just about activists wanting this. It isn't just about people who live in a place that is vulnerable wanting this. When we start aligning investment with good outcomes for nature and good outcomes for people, 
when we have green bonds and social bonds and blended finance instruments and new kinds of institutions that look to benefit from and benefit investors from protecting nature, then the rights of nature really become everybody's business in a very tangible way. Myra, this is something that's deep in your soul. I know that. And it is something that has been driving you for a number of years. What was your recognition? What was your aha moment when you realized that the rights of nature were, to paraphrase the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, inextricably bound up in humankind? I do see uh, a connection to the way that black and brown people are regarded to the way that the earth is treated. And sure enough, it's, it's something that we can document, the co-violations between human rights and nature's rights go hand in hand, where we see the destruction of nature, we see genocide, and we see inordinate suffering among women and children, animals, we see extraction of the earth, we see war, and we see poverty. And I will, I will be very uh, straightforward with you. This road that we're all on, I think, really does lead to a change in the global economic system. The global economic system in itself is what has perpetuated the very challenges that we have today. We spoke a little bit about indigenous wisdom, but that is the very thing that has inspired this growing number of earth-centered laws. But in reality, if you go to Colombia and meet with the judges, which I have, who have supported the rights of nature, they have done that without adding any new laws. It is their belief that at the bedrock of law, in the rule of law, is every bit of latitude to execute and defend the rights of nature. And they do not see any need to add any constitutional language. It is there. It's common. The commons are a part of the rule of law. Now, there are many jurisdictions around the world, but I like to stay at the heart of this. And so here's where it comes down for me. The false paradigm is simple. The products and services that we derive from the earth are derivatives. The global economy gives value to products and services, but zero to its source. And for as long as we do not recognize the fundamental ecosystems of the planet as that of great value, of value, there is no real value. There is no real wealth that we are measuring. And we will continue to see putting lives at risk and destroying the earth as good business and good for the economy. We're seeing it in the decisions being made today with COVID. It seems short-sighted as so much of what we have witnessed in the past several years, well, the past century, in fact, that we can harm nature at will for our own profit when it is nature itself that sustains us. And at some point, the harming of that nature is unsustainable, not only in the business form, but is unsustainable to human life and to all life 
all the way down to the microbes. You know, to be honest, the rights for every member of the Earth community is what I'm interested in. The right to live, the right to have habitats that that you can occupy and that allow you to be well, and, and the right to fulfill you know, this role of really an ever-renewing process that the Earth community is involved in. And I believe we as humans are to be involved in that. So I'm really uh, seeing a future where we turn in this interim from recognizing that we cannot sustain and maintain the worldview that is dominant of extraction and really outright degradation of natural systems on the planet to becoming a restorer. And I, I just feel that's where our future is. And I feel that it will inspire and will move us beyond the, the divide. The divide is really sown every day by a global economy that signals us to separate. And we're just a better people when we're together. I invite everyone who is listening to take some time to look at The Rights of Nature, a global movement, a documentary that uh, Myra has recommended, which I've watched, and it personalizes the story down to the individual indigenous people, uh, concentrating on not only Bolivia and Ecuador, but taking a look at Santa Monica, California, taking a look at the Maori people, and finding out what is being lost and what is overwhelmingly being gained in this process. We're going to continue this discussion in episode 11 as we continue the subject of rights of nature. Thank you very much. We'll be back with you for episode 11. Myra and Joe, thank you very much for everything that you've told us today. Thank you, Don, and thank you to everybody who's joining us. We really appreciate you spending time with us and, uh, and being part of this conversation. Yes, and I do uh, look forward to sharing links on the podcast page for references to Rights of Nature resources. And let me remind our listeners that they can go to earthintel.org at any time or geoversive.org. You can uh, read deeply and as deeply as you want to about these subjects, and we will post the links so that you will have access to all of this information as well. Thank you very much for being with us. If you have uh, any comments, please leave them on the earthintel.org website. And in the meantime, take good care of yourself during this holiday season. We'll be back. 11 will be the last of December, and we'll be back with you in January as we take some time off to be with our closest families and safely doing it. Thank you very much, everyone, for joining us. This has been Earth Intelligence.